When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome to Good Job, where we interview some inspiring people from the music industry and look at their journey from their very worst job to present day. It's how you handle those moments can actually make it work or it can become a total failure in how you handle it. And one of the, my favorite comments from the singer of The Who, Roger Daltrey, he said, uh, problem is an opportunity for greatness. Hello, welcome to Good Job. During the series, we are going to be interviewing the inspiring people behind the music that you guys love. And today our inspiring person is Brian Kihu. He, he's awesome. He's awesome. I was so excited to interview him. He is a musician, a sound engineer, and a producer, and he has worked with some of the greats in the industry. He's currently on tour with The Who. He's worked with them as a sound engineer and as a musician. He also produced Fiona Apple's last album and has mixed a variety of classic artists, including Aretha Franklin and Black Sabbath. He was just so interesting. He shared some studio stories with me and had great advice for singers and producers. Good job. What has been your worst job ever? It literally is my first job I think I had. Luckily, that means it's an uphill progression. But I worked at a shop called Pier One Imports, and they sold baskets and things from around the world. I was hired to do their inventory, and I remember sitting there, and I had a basket of these little periwinkle shells, little tiny shells that people could buy, and there were three cents a piece to purchase. And I said, well, there must be, you know, seven, nine hundred of them in here or something. I said, but by the time I count them up, you will have spent more on me than the basket is worth. And, and they said, no, you've got to count the shells one by one. So I counted up, you know, 900 little shells at three cents a piece. And I remember that being just such a anti-functional job in a way, too, because you're spending more money to do the inventory than the product is worth. How did you get into music from counting periwinkle things? I have a, an, a musical family, but an amateur musical family. Like my parents met in a singing club, but it was just a social thing. And that's how they met and fell in love with each other, which is kind of cool. We always had a musical family listening to the radio, buying records, going to shows and musicals and concerts and things like that since we were very young. Uh, my brother and sister and I had piano lessons assigned to us when we were kids. We didn't want to do it so much, but eventually that was good training for the rest of life. And then I got excited by my kind of music and learning some guitar and things like that too. And what was your first musical job then? I think I was working with people in studios, like I could play guitar and I could play keyboards. I have a fondness for synthesizers, which were more new back then, less common and certainly more special. So it was kind of cool to have one or even to be able to use one. So people would have me come to studios and add some parts to their recordings. And those are my first exploration of how much fun it is to be in a studio and to record, which I think is one of the most creative things in the world. You've done performing, you've been a producer, you've been a sound engineer. Do you have a favorite? Is it production that you love or do you just like doing it all? 
My favorite thing is probably mixing, and that's most of my work. I've been working for nearly 20 years, maybe so, maybe a little more for Warner Brothers mostly, but other companies too, other artists, where they bring me tracks that have been already recorded, and I get to mix them. And I think it's it's kind of like arranging the furniture in a room. But you're given certain things that you may not want to work with, or they may be incredible. I mean, that's the option too. You can have a Jimi Hendrix track come in or something awful, but... In this case, the Warner Brothers work is mostly artists that are famous or have established themselves over the years, decades even, that their music is good. And we're digging through the archives of Elvis Costello or Talking Heads or something to see what they've left out. And sometimes the leftovers are either raw or better or or interesting. So I like to go through that. And mixing that to me is the most fully creative part. I get to shape each sound. I can turn the bass up or I can mute it altogether. And I'm not doing a remix like a DJ would do or a dance music person. I'm not making it into something it wasn't. I'm just trying to mix it like when you've recorded your own record. I'm trying to mix it to sound its best. I don't even know where you start with that. Is it just the volume levels? That's a good question. I used to teach some recording. I went to university for school for that as well. And then after I graduated, I went back to help teach there for a while. One of the things I explained to the students was volume levels is certainly a significant thing. And it's not just how loud something is. If you have uh, something on the left speaker, you're essentially turning it up in the left speaker, turning it off in the right speaker. But if you want to add more bass to your voice, some low end, you're actually raising the volume of the low frequencies. So it's subtly the same thing. We call it EQ, but it really is a volume change. And then those other effects like compressors or something that will even out your voice. If you sing too wildly up and down, a compressor can even it out or even flatten it completely That's a volume control as well, too. But the same way, if you put a a soup or a cake together and you put the same amount of everything, it would be rather boring and maybe not taste good. Sometimes you just need a little bit of salt and a little bit of ginger or something to make the flavor good. Same way I would put in a little bit of tambourine, but not a lot of tambourine. And so it's completely creative because you have, if you even had only eight instruments, you have a lot of choices, hundreds, if not thousands, with those eight. But if somebody brings you 50 tracks or 100 tracks to play with, you have so many choices to make. You've had, a, well, you're currently on tour. You, you've been amazing and you've taken some time while you're on tour with The Who. How did you get into that job? I think this type of job is unique to me. I don't usually tour with people, although I've worked with a few other artists on their tours, helping them with their equipment. But I have a technical mind, and I like that side of things. And I like the yin and yang of artistic meets technical, like how do you use a tool to create art or music or something. So in this case, the Who, a project I was working at a guitar shop, you know, selling instruments to people. And I met this guy who was a roadie for the Who, and we became friends. And years later, he said, oh, I need some help with Pete Townsend, their leader, is going to do a solo performance, and he's going to play keyboards as well as guitar. This guy was the specialist in guitars for him for decades, my good friend Alan Rogan. Then he said, but I know you can handle the keyboards. Can you come down to work with us on this show? And I already love the Who. I love Pete Townsend. I love what they do. So I got to work on that show and become friends with them and got to help them. And they saw that I was knowledgeable and had some a level head about things. When things were going wrong, I could fix them. And that's part of what you're really needed for is, you know, your knowledge. And then the one or 2% of the time when things are going disastrously wrong, can you handle it well in the moment? Mm. Do you think that's one of the most important things about being on tour? I mean, you've done West End and you've done acting and things like that. You know, those moments when something goes wrong, somebody Mm. doesn't come out for their cue. It's how you handle those moments can actually make it work 
or it can become a total failure in how you handle it. Yeah. That's part of the, not training, but just the personality of the people that we work with is that they try to find people that can handle near disaster and hopefully make it better. <laughs> and one of the, my favorite comments from the singer of The Who, Roger Daltrey, he said, uh, problem is an opportunity for greatness. Yeah, I like that. Things are going just normal, then it's fine. It's actually what people expect and what's good. But if you've seen a comedian and somebody heckles from the audience, how the comedian handles that challenge can actually make the night greater, make an amazing moment of it, and become a champion of it. Or if the com if comedian is heckled and brought down by the heckler, it makes it worse. So it is an opportunity for greatness as well when something goes wrong, how you handle that. Is a very important part of it. Oh, yeah. It's totally the same with singing. The amount of times you'll do something and you'll sing it night after night. Something goes wrong. The band plays something different. I don't know. Something and you just have to improvise and you're like, oh, either that can be the most terrible thing in the world or something will happen. And you'll be like, wow, I sung a lot better than I usually do. Yeah. And you can see where someone who's a master at acting or a master musician can literally improvise something that's as good or better than what was planned. Mm. And I feel I've finally reached that way, you know, years ago with mixing that people could bring me the most distorted, ugly, awful recording. And it might even be missing an instrument that was supposed to be there and try to make something useful of it. And I can handle those things no matter what the sounds are. I've reached a level of how many thousands of hours of mixing that you could give me a children's jazz group from Japan recorded on two microphones that don't sound like each other. And I could try to make something useful out of it. What is it like being on tour with such a renowned band? I'm certainly a big fan of what they do, always have been. I mean, I grew up with that music and I like it. Getting to know them, of course, we are friends now. and We have worked, I think, 18 years or something together. So it's a lot more normal as it would be with anybody that you deal with on a normal basis. But I'm still absolutely looking up to them and I'm admiring their qualities of work. They're in their middle 70s now and they're playing a very intense show. I mean, Pete Townsend still windmills his arms around fully during shows and he's not pretending to. Sometimes even bleeds on the stage because he's playing that hard. Wow. And Roger the singer, who is absolutely a force of nature. He's, I think, 74, 75 now, and he's singing in a very high register with a very aggressive sound most of the night. Mm. I mean, he told me the other day, he goes, it's like vocal torture almost sometimes because they've got a two-hour show with a loud band behind you, and he grew up in the days when they had no monitors at all. And I honestly don't believe that most of the famous singers are not capable of doing what they used to do, but Roger's actually improved in the last 10 years. He's had a period of rejuvenation where he sounds great and he's singing songs in the original keys. Not everything is perfect all the time. It never was back in 1970. He talks about it. He always says that, you know, a bead of sweat and a bum note is better than singing something perfectly. He wants to go pushing it. He's really trying hard. You've also done a lot of work with Fiona Apple. You produced her last album and she's an amazing singer as well, a really emotional singer. She's a good friend of mine, and we've known each other since she started. I think I saw one of her first shows, if not the first, the second one she ever did. And I didn't know her much back then. She was just a friend of my roommate who was on her records, John Bryan, who's this amazing, gifted musician. And he was brought to produce her second album, uh, which is also a great record. First one had the most hits. Second one is a very artistic and high-quality record. 
But they came time to work on her third record, and it really wasn't bad, but it wasn't going well for them in some ways. And I'm not sure what the disconnect right. was, but they spent a long time on it and didn't quite finish it. I mentioned that we could finish up her record or do a third record for her without a budget because they were used to spending so much money to make a record. They, You know, she started with a major record deal, and they had platinum records, and they would use the best studios and orchestras around the world. But I said, you know, many of us record on a shoestring budget. And if you're just singing into a microphone, that could be done anywhere. If you're recording a drum set, that can be done in most places. And I have a studio and so forth. So we began to work on that record. And in a very short time with a very limited budget, we managed to put it together and it did well. So I'm very proud of having brought her out of that stuck point where we were. She and John had worked on the record and both of them were not satisfied with it. But we thought between us working together, we could keep the artistic side very healthy and yet simplify the music that it would be accessible. And it was. She's such a fantastic performer as well. And that she's not performing. This is the difference, I think. And I've talked to her about it, is that most people, when they sing, they're thinking about, you know, even Tom Petty, he's thinking about the song and the lyrics and singing this. But she literally, to me, goes into that space when she originally wrote the song. And she's possessed by that feeling, not remembering, but literally re-experiencing the whole moment of when she wrote something. And that's why it's so personal. It can be very hard on her to perform a show because she's not just phoning it in or singing the chorus to her big song. She's actually feeling what she felt when she wrote it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What do you think is the best trait in a singer? Character. And character means that you're different than everybody else. Same way you'd have a cartoon character. Bugs Bunny is not the same as Mickey Mouse. It's the differences you have. Whereas if you try to sound like Led Zeppelin or you try to sound like Beyonce or you try to sound like somebody else who's out there, you're already going to fail because there is one. And they may have a great voice and you can match it. But I think it's more interesting if you have a strange way of singing and many people consider like Eddie Vedder or R.E.M. or whoever, they have these unusual voices that actually stick out from the crowd. It may be even strange or annoying or something at first to some people, and half the world will turn it off, and the other half will say, that's my music. And that's where I like to give to my students that there isn't really a right and wrong. And people get this idea of there being a right and wrong way of singing, but I completely disagree with that in some ways. Of course, again, I want people to be healthy and not lose their voice. But after that, it's about expressing yourself and your personality and your truth. And 
your emotions. I don't sing myself, but I have grown up playing keyboards and guitar, mostly guitar. And I find that people like mm -hmm. Neil Young or Pete Townsend, who are technically, there are many more people advanced than they are. I know people that technically play better than Jimi Hendrix, but they don't have a personality. They don't have a style to it. And sometimes yeah. limitation equals style. If yeah, you think about Brian May from Queen, he has one of the most, if not the most distinctive guitar sounds in the world. He doesn't play country. He doesn't play jazz. He doesn't play funky stuff much. He has this Brian May tone and way of playing that's very unique. And it is a limitation specifically, or Carlos Santana, another very definable guitar player who plays in a certain way. But people, if you love that, he does it well. He does it over and over again. Is there a big difference between artists singing live and in the studio and what they need from their sound engineer and producer? Ah, absolutely, because live is more physical for the whole body. I think most performers realize that, that if you just stand there and sing, that is one performance, and that's part of how you do it. But most singers are moving or gesturing or expressing. It's hard to ignore 50 or 100 or 5,000 people in front of you. I remember seeing Maynard from Tool, and he's just hunched over, and he's kind of creating yeah. his own space that invites everybody in versus Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden, who's running and jumping and showing off for everybody in a way, too. It's a different approach based on the kinds of music they're doing. In the studio, they may be sort of similar, but I can imagine that one of them is not hunched over in the studio and the other one's not running in the studio. They're both controlling their voice to make the best record. Again, leaning towards my forte, which is studio work, I often find that people try to have too good a time in the studio. They want to just have this amazing emotional thing. But I was looking at old films of John Lennon, and he was literally just standing there with his eyes closed, singing into the mic, trying to capture as much onto the tape as he could do, not have a great time and feel the rhythm, it may not make as good a recording if you're trying to be a live performer in the studio. You've got to kind of rein it in and save your energy for the sound of what you're doing because sound is all that comes out on the recording. Mic technique is an interesting thing because I see so many singers doing it different ways. One of the things I found helps me as an engineer for recording and mixing is to put the microphone not right in front of the voice, but slightly up like at the nose, but still have the person sing straight out. And it does bring out like an EQ almost of the treble parts. So I would get a clearer sound, but you have to kind of retrain the singer to say, don't sing into the microphone. You could even put a fake one in front that they could sing into, but have a microphone up above nose or forehead level that picks up the sound from up there and have them sing out and forward. And it seems to be a good trick for microphone technique. But live, I see people doing all these things with microphones in the weird places, and sometimes they put their chin down or something that's really not conducive to good singing. They're worried about the microphone maybe more than they're singing. I suppose nowadays as well with live stuff, compression and things like that is so good that you don't need mic technique to the same extent as what you needed 10, 20 years ago. I get to mix an Aretha Franklin live record. She's known as one of the world's greatest singers. And it's just my opinion, but I think she had the world's worst microphone technique. She would whisper far away from the mic. And then when she wanted to really scream, she would lean into it. And I had trouble reining it in because it would dwarf the whole mix and so forth. So you've probably been shown sometimes when you sing loud, you back away from the microphone. 
to not overload it and to not cause a jump in the mix. And it helps balance out the bigness of that sound. In tone and pitch, when you get louder, the voice gets very bandwidth limited and very piercing usually. When you sing louder, it does kind of shrink up the tone and a big wide warm tone has gotten closer up. And especially if you don't have access to great equipment, if you're singing in a pub somewhere, it's something you really need to do because no one's going to help you. You don't have a nice sound engineer often. One of the biggest tricks we have in the studio, and every singer uses it without exception, is a compressor. And a compressor is an mm -hmm. automatic volume control. It almost negates the need to control your volume. In other words, if it sees the meter going too high, it brings the level back down. And when you're whispering, it brings up the volume, sort of. And it does make a more professional sound. Even if you're David Bowie or if you're anyone, we tend to use them in the studio because it's the sound of recording. We don't actually allow sounds to be whispered quiet. Normally, if you think about it, if someone was making a pop record and they whispered, you wouldn't hear it next to a drum set. A drum set would be much louder, but we can still hear those whispers because the compressor has brought it up. And then the loud parts where they sing on the chorus are actually the same volume. It's really kind of leveled it out for people. Or if you're frustrated by recording at home, sometimes a simple compressor, which might be as simple as a pedal or a box you can buy or a plug-in for your computer, learn to use it a bit. And that's a whole art in itself. But setting it on you will like you make you sound more even, more controlled, and more professional. I really don't know anyone that works without one when they're recording. Most people now use them live to get that studio-type sound, to get that control. And it does allow you to go up and down a little bit, or sometimes they just they call it a brick wall when you don't move at all. Whispering, screaming, it's all one level. And that's a certain kind of modern sound from recording we use with compressors. Very interesting. So you have written three books. Go on. You, you tell me all about them. The first one was uh, a book. I was interested in the Beatles, as many people are. Mm. I still think they're the reference standard for songwriting and music and making records. And I found that every time I was in the studio, somebody would reference something about their sounds or how they did a trick, and that no one really seemed to know how those things were done. Back in the 60s, when they made records, there weren't recording magazines. The whole studio process was a mystery, and it was even well into the 70s before people even wrote books on how to make a recording. So I set about this project, and midway through, I met this guy who was doing the same thing. And at first, it felt like competition, but I thought, why don't we team up? Because it's so much work. And this guy seems to be very good. He's now become a lifelong friend of mine, Kevin Ryan. But it became a very good book about the behind the scenes and the technique of making Beatles records. So it's not about John Lennon. It's not about their wives or their dogs or Maharishis or even the songs. It's about how they made drum sounds, how they did their voice, how they did special effects or even mixing. And so it's more of a, a thing for musicians and engineers who want to know about making records in those days. Kind of different than how we do it now because we have so many options. Mm -hmm. But the funny part was our book is very technical. It's about microphones. It's about tape recorders and speakers. But what we really learned from it that we want to talk about creativity. If you have less choices, you are more creative. Like if you there, Beth, mm -hmm. had 18 microphones to choose from for this podcast, you might spend an yeah. hour just deciding which one to use. And it might help you a bit, but it really wouldn't make a difference in the quality of the podcast, what we're talking about, which is the meat of what we're doing. 
And I think the Beatles had, you know, six or eight microphones their whole career. They had a very simple set of EQs. They had two of these compressors I was talking about. And so they didn't have a lot of choices. Therefore, they became more creative. While we were doing that, we were looking for cool pictures of the Beatles. And we found this great man in New York, Henry Grossman. He's a photographer. Mm -hmm. And he'd done everything from John F. Kennedy to famous authors and statesmen and sports people. And Pavarotti was one of his best friends and all these things. So but he had thousands of Beatles pictures that were unseen. And when we found him, we made our next two books out of his Beatles pictures. We have a fourth book that's been in the work for several years now, but I can't yeah. tell you about it, but it's maybe the coolest one. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, it'll be news in a few months. As you do when you're making music, maybe, or, or writing a book or a movie, we tried to find someone that would put it out for us. And they basically offered us these terrible deals where they own 90% of it. They take 90% of the money. They wanted us to mm -hmm. keep the book small, take out all the pictures, all these things that we said, no, people would want that. We're the audience for this book. We wrote it for ourselves, essentially. The book companies, same way record companies do, they were giving you a fraction of the value as your payment back, as royalties. So we decided to trust ourselves and put it out. Well, it sounds like you're, you're onto a great thing. And I think it's what you said earlier about it kind of not mattering the format of it. If you're putting in something that's good, people want it. If it's good quality. You know, the outlying things that people don't expect on paper would do well. Like Adele, she would not be most person's choice in a casting call of a thousand singers. But the way she wrote music, the way she communicated it, the way she's real has appealed to millions of people. And yet yeah. it is not what a record company would normally choose to do, but they got it right this time. And she really is the reason it's right, not the record company. And I think that you just have to believe in yourself. Maybe you're the person that knows best what your music is. It's more likely that you'll pick the best cover picture for yourself. You'll pick the best people to work with. You really want to present your music the way it should be and to trust yourself mm. to know what's right. Doesn't mean you'll succeed. But if you don't make your own record for you, you're just giving up to someone else. You might as well make some strange kind of record for that'll please a lot of people. Have you got any advice for one producers and two singers? I think the producers, uh, and this comes from a friend of mine named Michael Beinhorn, who's produced a lot of big records. His concept, which I'm amplifying and trying to bring about, is mentoring. The concept of a producer is to mentor your artist, like George Martin did with the Beatles, to take them a little further than their punk rock or Broadway or hip hop style and say, do you know about woodwinds? Do you know about xylophone? How about backwards recordings? What about being experimental and singing into a bucket with a microphone on the bottom to take an artist further than they would comfortably go? And if they reject it, fine, but you've given them three options that are bigger and better than what they normally do. Giving away information never really hurts you. It's not a secret in this no. world. All these tricks we talked about today are not anything that hurts me to tell somebody else. It only helps people. So if you can mentor people, I think that's a really good one as a producer. What's your tips for singers? I would say be careful of influences. If people can spot that you listen to Kate Bush all the time, or they can spot that you listen to Morrissey, it means you've spent so much time emulating them or singing their records that you may have nobody sings like those people. Those people do because they were original. I hear a lot of Britney Spears clones. I hear a lot of Beyonce clones. I hear a lot of people who are unaware that they sound just like someone else. And those people are very mm -hmm. distinctive. They're not the normal singer. So I think it's good to be able to say, 
that may be your favorite music, but is there a way you can incorporate two or three styles from different singers to come up with your own? Yeah. So interesting. And I, you're just like a wealth of knowledge. So thank you for imparting some of it to us. Cool. I have one note that I wrote at the bottom to mention to you. Yeah. Uh, you asked me about live performing and it's nothing in my oh, forte, yeah. but I remember once being taught somebody and we were dealing with stage fright. And she said, when you're standing there almost ready to go out and you're getting that nervous tension feeling and you start to tighten up, you're always trying to fight it. Do the opposite. Try to get as frightened as possible. And in a way, you're relaxing at that point because you're letting it come at you instead of trying to fight it off. But you're relaxing into it. And you're also, it does tend to dissipate. It doesn't go away 100%, but it goes away like 80% that it actually becomes pointless. Mm -hmm. Like the, the fear actually goes down at that point because you're not resisting it. It's a weird trick, but next time you have this issue, try it. And it's a great trick, another mind trick, but it's good to have that if you're going to be going on stage. What a great tip to end on. Good job. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.